Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, I'm 
gonna load up a gun. Oh, we go. Oh, keep up town, let's keep up town, this is a big big town. Erasing away all the strife Telling our tales with verbal mail Putting honey on the blade Creating language to persuade Share who we've always been Always a blessing, never a sin We are doo-wop and bebop and hip-hop And we don't stop Since our mother gave birth to everyone on earth So we echo her call And always walk tall we're hip to the world, so we create black pearls that everyone can wear, that everyone can share. We can't live in despair, so we shine everywhere. On and on. On and on. On and on. to Africa on the Move on the second day of October 2022. Our theme tonight is part two, Black Rage versus Big Tech. As always, we're going to speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. We are political panelists and analysts. We're going to find it and stand behind it. And we're going to bring the heat to you tonight. The heat is on, as they say. We hold how an exciting, enlightened, and an educational program where we will provide you with information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation. That's to help liberate your people from all the various forms of oppression as well as humanity. So on that note, I'm your host, Brother Africa. This is Africa on the Move. We're going to continue to travel down the path of liberation by introducing to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. First, I'd like to start out with Brother Haki and welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamaki Nishoki. <clears throat> Currently, I'm with African Awareness, and of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is institution building. But certainly in the, in the course of trying to build institutions, I mean, there are many uh, uh, pivotal questions that have to be entertained in terms of which best way forward. Uh, recently, I read an article, and I think it was a very provocative article, so I, I had to respond to it because I, I I felt that, you know, aside from the uh, the the, the provocative nature of the of the of the article, uh, the, the 
the notion uh, somehow uh, it came across as somewhat being um, a historical. But in any event, I uh, I wrote this piece, so I certainly hope you know uh, you know um, that uh, this would elicit some response from this particular individual in terms of you know uh, my response, my rebuttal, you know, to his piece. In any event, check this out, Brother Africa. Okay, an article entitled "Race Re- Reductionism Threatens to Doom the Left." struck me as ahistoric and woefully histrionic. The author conveniently concludes, the struggle for a more humane existence may be lost due to African community embrace of reparations. He surmises embrace of reparations affords the right, far-right conservatives with ammunition they need to divide an already divided nation using reparations as a catalyst for attacks on critical race theory 1619 projects to galvanize racism. His opposition to African articulation to ethnic grievances seems odd. African grievances have long elucidated historical injustices and have always been the catalyst for political change in the U.S. Why would claims of reparation support universally endorsed become problematic in the year 2020 with the emergence of the Black Lives Matter? He makes the, he makes the argument that Black, Man, <laughs> the Black Lives Matter uh, um, is partly responsible in terms of the kind of uh, difficulties that we're currently experiencing in terms of you know organizational growth. Uh, it seems to me there's an argument at the very at its, at its core is to me it seems very incredulous. Now his argument identity politics like Black Lives Matter is responsible for the rise of the far right is sheer lunacy. The reality is, irrespective of Black Lives Matter's emergence, the far right is weaponized by media narratives right-wing politicians to discredit and marginalize African people because the decline of capitalism demands it. Keep in mind, the rightward drift of white America started in the 1990s during President Clinton's term, well in advance of the origin of the Black Lives Matter. Now, keep in mind, in, re- in reference to Clinton, his indifference to black pain legitimized and exclusionary politics that gave rise to far-right claims change was needed to avert the country from the socialist pearl, which is in effect, anti-American. This sentiment gave rise to right-wing stratagems that doubled down on the erroneous platitude that any social political hardship imposed on African people were pure myth. This mythological interpretation of non-existent black repression served as the perfect backdrop to implement draconian tax cuts for the wealthy and welfare reforms that exacerbated crippling poverty. The general African response was to abhor those perceived these perceived attacks on humanity and revulsions were not limited to the impact on African people, but its impact on all people, irrespective of the ethnicity. Conservative politicians, sensing their interests were under attack, used a general sentiment in the African community to highlight the political divide in the nation and just how out of touch the African community is with respect to mainstream American values. Now, when the author of the article vehemently proclaims the feat of right-wing extremism is only achievable utilizing a movement based on class analysis, his supposition implies many Africans' unease with Marxism is primary reason of the left's inability to expand organizationally. Furthermore, the assertion that ethnic articulation of racial oppression is counterproductive to growing a movement is extremely provocative, not to mention ahistorical. Dico Agazino's critique of Das Capital, volumes one and three, points out Marx's acknowledgement of the African paradigm, shopping his understanding of liberation struggle, strategically situated among his exposition, 
is the role of racial articulation, class, and gender questions. While the legitimacy of race was seen as counter-revolutionary, he understood the colonization of Africa was as much about civilized whites against uncivilized blacks as it was about conquest from material gain. Recognizing race in conjunction with class and gender gave rise to a more complete analysis of the complexities of wage and struggle. Marx went further. By rejecting the nomenclature, white supremacy, he alluded to the good and bad in all people, preferring the term human race. Marx's designation <coughs> has relevance for current political struggles. In the U.S., according to Pew Research, 7 out of 10 white Americans embrace cultural issues, not class issues. Marxism's assumptions of material aspirations as the basis for human behavior is greatly tested. Overwhelming support for Trump, despite his indifference to the plight of working people, is, is instructive. Unconscious motivation is much too complex to deduce from a singular stimulus, like the drive for money, but may arise from multiple stimuli that affects human motivation, including childhood trauma. There is no question Trump's appeal to white racial resentment does resonate with many white people on the right and left of the political divide. The downside of embracing racial resentment is the unconscious or conscious acceptance of political platitudes that devalue the lives of African people as trivial or their concerns irrelevant. Against this backdrop, any political ideology Marxism included that inadvertently corroborates right-wing platitudes likely will be rejected by many Africans. In the case of Marxism, illiberal belief systems that maintain African sacrifices in the course of political struggle should be relegated to footnotes would not be likely to be, likely be viewed well by most African people. This is particularly the case when polls illustrate the message of class is not, is not penetrating the collective white consciousness that views Africans outside the mainstream. Strategies that persist, <coughs> that persist a class analysis of political phenomenon, even when the idea of class is repudiated by both the white, white, right, right, and many among the white left, suggest a different way of quantifying political struggle is at hand. Perhaps the embrace of self-determination for African people and indigenous groups will clarify their commitment to a new paradigm. Of course, some may conclude what I'm advocating is divisive. On the contrary, since the unconscious mind informs motivation, why not incorporate what Marx called the concept of the human race? If political resentment emanates from the perceptions African and other ethnicities are different, why not implement organizing strategies that confirm humanity's oneness? In doing so, beliefs of biological distinctiveness of whiteness, the fallacious, fallacious concept of race, and genetic superiority of any ethnic group could be vanquished. This strategy would not liquidate class antagonism, but it would negate the most subjective variant of human motivation, which is hate. This strategy for many would be problematic for a couple of reasons. One, for many white Marxists, giving up the perceived advantages of whiteness is fine symbolically, but the practical implications of forging a new reality would not be in their interest. In other words, the role of class manifests itself. Secondly, the tacit racism that sees social phenomena through the, a Western lens potentially could validate role of, role, the role of perception. As it currently stands, perception is used to devalidate African claims of a brutal and repressive system. Viewing African persecution through the lens of perception makes it easier to discredit systematic oppression and blame Africans as the source of their problems. Even though socioeconomic, 
statistics bear out the political atrocities inflicted on Africans, perceptions shaped by history, media narrative, and educational institutions makes oppression of Africans both palatable and justifiable. Change of perception changes reality. Does the so-called white left really churches this kind of change? Currently, hubris is in control. The level of institutional racism that sustains divisions in the U.S. are overlooked in exchange for vilifying the African community. 72% of the U.S. population thinks social political problems of other states does not exist in the U.S. What this office sees as ignorance among the African populace concerning Marxism is not necessarily a function of sectarianism, but the internalization of a historical manipulation. The propensity to submit the racial character of struggle devalues the social economic challenges of Africa, Africans and their successes. Marxist focus on class dynamics is germane to understanding society. However, when interpretation inadvertently downplays the day-to-day struggles of African people, it loses some efficacy. Likewise, refuting the strategic relevance of reparations and conflating it, and conflating it allure with being counterintuitive only, only compounds divisions. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. You in the seat, Brother Haki, you're going to take the heat because as you define it, you're going to stand behind it. We're going to come back to that particular um, dialogue. But at the present time, we can move forward with Brother Anthony, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Uh, thank you for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you. Uh, the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objectivist Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Following Brother Anthony, we now going to bring in Brother Moses and welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I called Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I believe women hold up half the sky. Equal rights amendment, yes, E-R-A, yes. And I think that we have to continue to to unite the many to defeat the few. We have to see see things for what they are and understand things for what they are and not and put our own uh, biases into it. And so I think, you know, we have to struggle to to uh, bring about a just and equitable world. We recognize that super profits come from the exploitation of people of color and uh, and the discrimination against women as well. So we we just thank you, Brother Affin, for allowing us to be on the show. Always honored to have you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, 
We can now go to Sister Eleanor, and we'd like to welcome her to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Good evening, Brother Africa, uh, fellow panelists, and to our listening audience here in the United States and abroad. Thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's forum. And I look forward to uh, a delightful and exciting show. I continue to stand in solidarity with the Palestinians against Israel, Israeli apartheid. I support the people of Yemen in trying to uh, stop the war, solve the war against them. I support the people of Afghanistan as winter approaches. They're still, you know, facing yet another fuel crisis and food crisis. And uh, I am looking forward to the elimination of NATO and uh, stopping this uh, atrocity that the world is involved in. If we can eliminate NATO, I think it would solve the Ukrainian-Russian problem immediately. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, and welcome to our listeners to Africa on the Move. It's a weekly talk show under the banner of the African Women Association. You can tune in every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S., and join us by dialing 323-679-0841 to give your views, your perspectives as we discuss them and how they may relate to our realities and how we can better get a better understanding of the world so we can help move the world forward and particularly our people movements. So at this point in time before we take our station break, I would like to go back to Brother High King and to my panelists. I have an open mic. I'd like to have some discussion on this whole idea based upon high-key articulation just now that there are some people in this world believe that by asking for reparation or fighting for reparation and doing more harm and good is splitting and separating and causing more confusion among the people and seeing like that particular move is an issue for some people. How do y'all feel about that position, Brother Haki? I'll let you go back and respond further on that position, and I'd like to hear my panelists on that position. I just question, are they blaming the wrong people and the wrong issue of, of reparation as it relates to the oppression of African people and people non-European, non-European period, Brother Haki? You know, Brother Africa, you know, that's a, someone, a, um, I think, from my perspective, so much a bogus claim in terms of reparations and specific divisions, and I'll tell you why. Because the question in terms of divisions already exists. And, of course, you know, as I alluded to, when we talk about divisions, we, essentially we're talking about institutions with the power to actually in, influence people's, uh, uh, people's thoughts. So we talk about the role of the media, and we talk about the role of, of educational institutions, uh, you know, and we talk about the role of powerful politicians who have the uh, limelight. Uh, who has the, uh, the the visibility to articulate a particular thing, and that that, that particular that particular saying gets gets uh, gets spread throughout you, throughout the country, 
it has a tremendous influence in terms of how people think, how people see the world. So the kind of division that we're talking about is, in, in effect, is, 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 is not result of something as simplistic as reparations. The division that we're talking about is part and parcel of a political system which understands that the survival is tied up in terms of divide and conquer. So to the extent that it can divide African people from all others, then it does, it does, it does itself a, serv- a service. And so we, so we have to understand fundamentally that when we talk about the, uh, the division, you know, to lay that defeat of, you know, of reparations, something that doesn't make any sense. And historically, when you look at it in terms of, in terms of reparations, uh, clearly, you know, when there's, a, when there's um, major atrocities being, atrocities being committed against people, the, the remedy is often being uh, reparations. Uh, the Jews talk about reparations. The Japanese reparations. Uh, the Armenians talking about reparations. Uh, there are there are tribes like those tribes like in Yemen. The Yazidis were talking about reparations. So you have this 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 this, this, this general push toward reparations to address the historical wrongs or current wrongs. And so in that context, it seems to me to articulate those wrongs makes sense from a political perspective, because the more you provide clarity for people, then the better people understand what the issues are. I think one of the problems is if you say that reparations is not an issue, then essentially what you're saying is that the social economic conditions that impact African people, uh, the, 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 the impact it had in terms of our educational powers, to say that reparations doesn't play a part in, in terms of contributing to those ills will be disingenuous. We understand, just in terms of your socialization, we understand that traits get passed down from parent, from, from parent to parent to parent to parent, and we understand that. They, in turn, pass those same traits down to their children. Their children pass those traits down to their children. And so, therefore, when we look at in terms of the pathology that's unique in terms of, you know, the African experience in America, then we understand that there's a system in place to foment or to facilitate that, uh, that, 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 that psychology in the minds of African people. In that context, the system is and certainly uh, plays a part, or certainly uh, indictable in terms of the role that it played in terms of facilitating that mindset which in effect uh, create a, 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 a situation where um, uh, the kind of um, the kind of hopelessness, the kind of apathy, the kind of uh, lack of sense of empowerment uh, permeates you know the African community. Clearly, we have to understand because we talk about a system, we understand that system impact on human human consciousness. Do we understand that you know a lot of these problems that we're confronted with today are the direct result of our enslavement in the society? That's not an excuse. That's scientifically verifiable, sociologically, psychologically, psych- you know, whatever way you want to put it. Uh, so, this, so this notion that, in fact, that, that reparations is somehow the problem, I find extremely disingenuous because, you know, the problem is that, you know, people who, who oppose reparations, for whatever reason they oppose reparations, uh, it, I mean, that's fine. But generally, when you talk about on the right who oppose reparations, they oppose anything they perceive as a benefit to African people. So let's be very, very clear on that point. For those Africans who propose re- reparations out of the guys that, well, reparation makes us look weak, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know what to say to that. Say to that. Uh, either historically these things happen to our people and the manifestation is what you see today or it didn't. So sort of paint us as weak simply because we're human and that we responded to the conditions that we were placed under, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. But, any less, but nonetheless, that's my view on that, Brother Africa, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, your response the cause for reparation create division among the people. No, actually, 
the people already divided and were divided before the demand for reparations uh, w- uh, was articulated. Uh, reparations, uh, let's see, is, uh, is, is a just demand. However, it can only be obtained if the enemies of our people are defeated on a permanent uh, once and for all. And that is capitalism in all of its manifestations, including racism, Zionism, imperialism, neocolonialism, settler colonialism, etc. Those those who call for reparations now do not do not understand that the enemies of our people still exist, and only when uh, when, uh, when 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 those when those enemies are defeated can we get reparations from our enemy. Enemy uh, reparations is what you get from a defeated enemy, not one that stays intact. And uh, that is my only argument against reparations, is that those who call for it at the the present time, uh, in the disorganized state that the people are in, are putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. And uh, and the only way we're going to get reparations if all he- enemies of humanity are defeated, and that can only and the first step to that is permanent mass organization. We are we are disorganized as a people. And as long as we disorganize, we cannot uh, be victorious in any conflict with our enemies. That's my view on Thank that you. issue. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, talk to us. What is your position on does reparation divide the people? Uh, what is your take, Sister Eleanor? Reparations is a very complex uh, issue, and um, I agree with uh, both Brother Anthony and Brother Aki is that um, if you're talking about uh, domestic uh, reparations, um, you know, there are there are people who are the descendants of the builders of this country as well as indigenous people who have been robbed. So it, it was it's a very complex issue and how it would be addressed. And there's a very strong uh, reparation movement uh, that has um, been um, around now for nearly a century. So there's definitely a move for reparations. And all I can say is I think that the folks who have invested 
in um, developing uh, the theory and uh, for reparations and identifying the descendants of those who they think should justly receive reparations should unite with the uh, socialists and other activists in this country, including the indigenous people, to form a new political party to address the issues of uh, the working class and solve all of our problems at not all persons here are qualified. Not all oppressed workers in this country are qualified or eligible for reparations because they were not here or their ancestors weren't here during the construction of the country and weren't aren't descendants of the indigenous or enslaved people who were either robbed of their land or forced into servitude to build uh, this nation. But nonetheless, they are oppressed, and they are oppressed workers. So what I see is what's frequently spoken about with uh, uh, Brother Aki and Brother Anthony is organizing and uniting so people with um, uh, the politically astute need to unite and uh, with the uh, reparation movement and pull together and form a coalition that focuses on forming a new party rather than relying entirely on the democratic and social uh, democratic and republican parties or the um, few other parties that they have um, in this country but we definitely need some type of worker worker party that uh, uh, would allow to address issues that are common to workers as well as the issues that are common to the descendants of uh, the slaves in this country and the indigenous people of this country. So if all parties can unite, I think we'd have uh, a lot going for ourselves and we would see... uh, a better response um, um, from uh, uh, the ruling class because right now the real issue is um, taking power from that 1% from the few and redistributing it to the many. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. We now will go to Brother Moses. Your thoughts, Brother Moses, is this question of reparation, issue of dividing the people. Yeah, this uh, question of reparation, um, it's always going to be a controversy. There are going to be some friends and some enemies. And uh, 
And that's just the nature of politics and the struggle. So we have to recognize that and accept that. So we have to put our demands forward. Uh, we have to rally around our demands. Uh, we have to get consciousness raised as to why we need and who we are and what we're about. And and so, you know, it's an organizing tool um, um, to 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 um, unite the many to defeat the few. And so, so reparation is, is is has been like uh, Sister Eleanor said, has been a demand for for over a century, and it, it will continue to be a demand. And uh, we have to we have to organize people around the the consciousness of society and uh, how society works, how society developed, how society got to where it is, and then what we can do to change things. And this is all political consciousness raising, and reparation reparation has to be an intricate part of that. Um, And so, you know, we, you know, the super exploitation of of indigenous and and colored people, people of color, uh, has been going on since the capitalist from it's the root of capitalism, and uh, and. and it will not, and it will only be overcome when, when we recognize it radically, um, and uh, at the base and at the root of, of what it is, what it is that brought us to this point in history. We have to be a, a, a concrete analysis of concrete conditions, and uh, we need a radical and uh, revolutionary outlook on the question. And we need to convince other people of the correctness of our ideological and political line. And so, you know, organization is a work in progress. We're still organizing, 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 and and, and we need to continue to organize. Everyone should be belong to an organization that's, that's in the struggle for our people, and we're in the process of creating an organization that's in the um, that is that is. A revolutionary vanguard organization, uh, and um, hopefully we will succeed. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, and to our political panelists and analysts. At this particular time, you listen to Africa on the Move. We're going to take a revolutionary culture break. When we return, we're going to make our transition to what's going on in our world and the community. When we come back, we will ask our brother Anthony. On behalf of the AAPRPGC, they have done a excellent condolence statement in honor of a true revolutionary sister that the world must know and learn about, and she will not be left out of our missing pages of history. We will do a tribute, make a sweet statement in honor of Ethel Manor, who was born in 1933, and she made a transition on the 20th of September, 2022. We'll do that particular acknowledgement, and then we will invite you to join us as we discuss what's going on in our world and the community. And you can do that by calling in at 323-679-0841. Hit 1. We will acknowledge your last four number. I'm Brother Africa. And like we said, we're going to speak truth to power. power. And when we come back, we hope that you'll do the same.
This is Africa on the move.
before the shit start, before it get dark, before they hit you with the pitchfork. Better crib walk, crib walk. This is real talk. Smoke push and push, then we peel off. Niggas still running with the wheels off. Always looking out for the crisscross. I'm a bigger boss than Rick Ross. Always winning, nigga get lost. It's the warlord, bring the voodoo. When I bail through, it's crazy like Bellevue. What they tell you, that leave that boy alone, like home alone. Yeah. Fuck a selling bomb, arrest the president. You got the evidence, that nigga is Russian intelligence. When it rains, it pours. Did you know the new pipe was orange? Boy, you're showing your horns. They trying to replace my halo with thorns. You so basic with your vape sticks. Let's go ape shit in the matrix. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. I took back my eyes and all black tonight. That's right, some niggas gotta sacrifice. Not a criminal. No, I'm a seminal. Yeah. I was free once. Now I'm clinical. You so technical. This was Mexico. Now everywhere I go is owned by Mexico. Fuck them, fuck them and the rest of you yeah. I turn a phone to a black I'ma roll with the aliens Man, fuck these homo sapiens They don't really wanna make friends All they want is a Mercedes Benz All they want is they dividends and decibels Fuck these citizens They'll treat us like hooligans Throw him in, they don't care what school he in These people don't play fair it ain't even fair at the state fair. Give a young nigga gray hair. That's why I'm here. Make your ass lay there. You better stay there. Close your fucking eyes like a daycare. Make myself clearer than Shakespeare. I'm here to take money, even fake hair. So desperate is what I'm left with. For the record, you affected. Who you elected It's so septic. So full of shit, I can't accept it. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. I reside on the west side. I murder with my third eye. Nigga so fly, get a bird's eye. I make him scream bloody murder. Let's meet at the White House. Run in and turn the lights out. Man, they treat it like a trap house. These motherfuckers never take the trash out. They just cash out and mash out. Nigga, take your drugs and pass out. Niggas love to go that fast route. I see you when your black ass get out. Homie, you play too much. Why these devils, they doing way too much. Most of them won't say too much. Why they steady planning? God knows what. That's why I roll with the real ones. Real ones, trying to reach millions. Real ones, trying to make billions. Real ones, dress like civilians. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. You got the evidence. That's right. You might have the evidence, but if you ain't got the power to make it happen, the evidence is very futile. That's what they send to the rest of the world. We got the mic, so we're going to define what is right. Evidence and the truth means nothing. For those 
who are in power. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We're making that transition to what's going on in your world and the community. Before we make the transition to what's going on in your world and this community and this upcoming acknowledgement and recognition of the outstanding young lady, revolutionary sister, Pan-African sister, sister who is truly a freedom fighter that the world must know and remember and learn from. Sister Ethel Manor, we're going to just uh, acknowledge a few historical events that took place on this day, the 2nd of October, which is Nat Turner. He was an African freedom fighter, born in 1800 on this particular day, October the 2nd, as well as the Guinea Political Independence Day was achieved on October 2nd, 1958, and the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya began in 1952 on this particular date, the second day of October, October 2nd. There were some historical facts from our history, from our movements, from our struggle. We want you to remind you. And right now, we're going to bring in Brother Anthony from the All African People's Revolution Empire GC who will share with the listening audience and the rest of the world a biography, a history on a wonderful sister, a revolutionary sister, who did so much, and most of us probably have never heard of this sister, but when we write the history book, she must be in it, and we must give her her proper contributions to the struggle of African people and advancement of all humanity. Sister Ethel Manor. Brother Anthony, welcome back. Um, we'd like to just give you the mic now. And that was a beautiful statement written in terms of the history of who was Sister Ethel Manor. We will ask you to go ahead and read the statement. And panelists, if there are anything that you would like to say in honor of our sister, we'll give you a minute or so to make a comment. So right now, Brother Anthony, we're going to turn the mic over to you. Thanks, Brother Africa. In memoriam, Ethel Minor, A Quiet Storm. Ethel Minor made her transition on September 21st, 2022. The All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and Bob Brown, who worked with her, send condolences and best wishes to Judy and Bob Starks, her sister and brother-in-law, and to her biological and movement family. An official obituary and information about her funeral slash memorial service will be provided soon. In the meantime, the AAPRPGC briefly and proudly introduces her to five generations of African and other radicals and revolutionaries, especially women, and to future generations as yet unborn. She was born in 1933 into a large and extremely accomplished Episcopalian family in Chicago. She converted to Catholicism later in life and remained extremely religious. 
Lauren Cresslove, Francis Cress Welsing, and Barbara Cress Lawrence are three of her distinguished and accomplished cousins. Ethel studied mass communications in Chicago and in Columbia, South America from 1960 to 1962. She became extremely proficient in the Spanish language and served for more than three decades as a journalist, editor, and organizer, translator, and Spanish-English teacher. While in Colombia, Ethel met a who's who of Arabs, especially Palestinians and Syrians, who had moved there in the wake of the 1948 Israeli war against an occupation of Palestine. The relationships she developed and her love for Africa, Palestine, and the Middle East blossomed and grew even stronger when she returned to the United States. She worked with but did not join the Nation of Islam from 1962 to 1964. She served, among other capacities, as a Spanish-language translator for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. She met and worked with a who's who of the nation's members, including Malcolm X, Louis Farrakhan, Akbar Muhammad, and Sister Christine Johnson, the, the then principal of the Nation of Islam School. Sister Christine knew and was close to Kwame Nkrumah from his student days in 1935 at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania to his transition in Bucharest, Romania in 1972. An accomplished journalist, editor, translator, and organizer, Ethel met and worked with a who's who in the African media community in Chicago, including Lerone Bennett, Hoyt Fuller, David Lawrence, and others at Ebony and Jet magazines and the Negro Digest, later named Black World Magazine. She also worked closely with E. Rodney Jones, Wesley South, Don Cornelius, and others at WVON, and with Bobby Singstack at the Defender newspaper. Ethel moved to New York in 1964, and she served as one of Malcolm X's secretaries and translators. She also served as the office manager of the Organization for Afro-American Unity and as a liaison to the African-Spanish-speaking and Arab-slash-Palestinian communities in New York and to the United Nations and the media. Malcolm X's murder on February 19, 1965, 
had a profound impact on her and changed her life forever. At 33 years of age, in 1966, shortly after the Black Power March in Mississippi, Ethel moved to Atlanta and joined the national staff of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. She became Kwame Ture's secretary, editor of SNCC's newsletter, and served as a staff member in its National Communications Department from 1966 to 1968. Among countless other assignments, she coordinated Kwame's speaking engagements worldwide for almost a decade and wrote or helped edit many of his speeches, correspondence, articles, and books. She corresponded to and helped manage thousands of media requests and interviews. Ethel helped make history. She was a quiet storm. She also played a critical role in determining who would speak at the events that Kwame could not fulfill, and in assisting SNCC staff, volunteers, friends, and allies in their media work across the United States and the world. Ethel worked with and alongside and helped midwife nurture and develop countless organizers and organizations within the Black Power, Pan-African, Socialist, Anti-Repression, Peace, Student, and Women's Movements from 1967 to 1965-1976. The release of the list of organizers and organizations she helped and the documentation of their and her contributions to and achievements in the movement will shock the world and change the historical narrative forever. Seventeen of these SNCC and BPM organizers, including Ethel, who worked with Kwame from 1966 to 1972, served as the initial members of the Central Committee of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party from 1972 through 1976. This list includes Cleve Sellers, Freddie Green, and Willie Ricks in Atlanta, Greensboro, and D.C., Jan Bailey, Coco Farrell Barnes, and Steve Farrell, Helen Leach Woodruff, and Paul and Evelyn Monroe in D.C., Seku Chico and Renee Neblin in Boston, David Brothers, Bill Hall, Babu and a team in New York and New Jersey, Lamine Janga in Conakry, and Bob Brown in Chicago. The AAPRP was called for in the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare by Kwame Nkrumah in 1966-67, and he struggled to build it 
until his transition in 1972. It was publicly announced to almost 2,000 students 50 years ago at Howard University on September 17, 1972. Ethel and Jan and the other members of the AAPRP's DC cadre organized announcement and launched a worldwide recruitment drive. The All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, proudly proclaims that we inherit and continue the revolutionary theory and practice of Kwame Nkrumah, Ahmed Secretary, and Kwame Ture. Truth be told, and it will be told one day, Kwame Ture did not come into or leave this world and the movement alone and he did not navigate its commanding heights or treacherous thefts alone. From 1966 to 1975-76, Ethel Minor was a quiet storm beneath his wings, a firestorm protecting, enabling, and empowering him. And we are only now beginning to learn about and enjoy the fruits of the seeds that Ethel helped sow. Ethel traveled to Guinea several times and met with and worked with Nkrumah Ture about briefly. The All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, does not mourn Ethel's passing. Too much blood, sweat, and tears have been shed and will be shed. We will not cry. There are over 1.8 billion young people in the world today, 90% of whom live in Asia, including Palestine and the Middle East and Africa and their diasporas. There are more than 235 million youth in India 225 million in China, and 108 million in the Middle East today, 211 million in Nigeria, 35 million in Sudan, 26 million in in Egypt, 19.6 million in Azania, South Africa, 11.5 million in Ghana, and and some many million in Guinea Conakry, 50 million in Brazil, 43 million in the United States, and 20 million in Colombia, South America alone. More alpha miners of all colors are being born every day and coming of revolutionary political age. Much, much more. It will be a great day when we see the smiles on young girls' faces, not just African girls who live and suffer, study and struggle in 125 countries, islands, territories, dependencies in Africa and the African diaspora when they discover Ethel Minor and learn about her work, study, and struggle, her contributions and achievements. From 
from that dialectic moment, that revolutionary moment, they will know what they can do, what they must do to help liberate and unify African and oppressed humanity. Armies of African, Palestinian, indigenous, Hispanic, and Latino, European, and other young revolutionary women must be inspired, enabled, and empowered to help achieve, write, and film Ethel's story. We are sure that young revolutionary men will also help. We trust that Judy and Bob Stark and Ethel's friends and family worldwide will make that happen soon, very, very soon. In the meantime, as in Comus Torres, we continue Ethel's, Kwame's, and our work, study, and struggle. We continue to fight for revolutionary Pan-Africanism and socialism and to build the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Victory is inevitable, but not in our lifetime. For those uh, in the audience who, who are in the, the Chicago vicinity, uh, memorial services will be held Monday, October 3rd. Visitation begins at Cage Memorial Chapel, located at 7651 South Jeffrey Boulevard at 11.30 a.m. Funeral service will begin at 12.30 p.m. with burial afterwards at Lincoln Cemetery at 123rd and Kinsey Avenue, Blue Island, Illinois. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for that beautiful announcement and tribute to our sister Ethel Manor, uh, for our panelists who might would like to um, say a few words or something as it relates to her legacy. We're going to get each one of y'all um, a minute or so to make whatever statement you'd like to make in terms of doing the nature of the work that she has contributed to to help not only move African people forward, but all the humanity. We'll start off with you, Brother Haki, and your thoughts and ideas you'd like to express to the family at the manor. Yeah, you know, Brother Africa, it's always uh, sad, you know, when these historical uh, figures, you know, pass. You know, on the one hand, you know, their, their accomplishments, the things that they sought out to do, their love of humanity, will be greatly missed. But on the other hand, you, you're sort of happy that, you know, uh, that they at least, you know, have, don't have to deal with this day-to-day sanity, you know, that uh, permeates, you know, this world. Uh, so in that regard, you know, uh, you know she, she, will be greatly, she will be greatly missed. Uh, to her family, I send my deepest condolences, you know, to her passing. You know, uh, and certainly as, as 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 Brother Anthony alluded to, you know, certainly uh, one would hope that her example would uh, would uh, sort of illuminate the way for for younger people in terms of the importance in terms of fighting for humanity, 
despite uh, the, 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 the glitz and glamour of doing those things which are not particularly conducive toward uh, a, a new paradigm. Uh, so clearly the system will be missed, and, uh, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Next we're going, Brother Sister Eleanor. Any thoughts you would like to make towards our Sister Ethelmano? I'd like to um, just say uh, my condolences go out to her family, both her biological as well as her world family. It's a great loss. And the Cresswellsing family in general, you know, Frances Cresswellsing and her great work. And the family is just known collectively for their great work on the advancement of African people in America and around the globe. Um, And uh, it's just a shock and a great loss. And for many of us, we were completely unaware, unaware until very recently how vast the the uh, Crest Wellsing family was in terms of their intellectual contributions to the world and to the African community and it's a terrible loss and my prayers go out to her family. And uh, thank you for that moment to speak. And Brother Moses, the mic is yours. Thank you, thank you, Brother Afghar. Certainly, we we want to acknowledge that we were not aware of uh, this woman's great accomplishments, uh, and so it's a, a pleasure to have uh, um, that consciousness being raised through the uh, reason of her passing, et cetera. Uh, she, she obviously is an unsung hero of the movement and that, uh, you know, someday the full stories will be told. Uh, 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 but uh, we certainly give our condolences, our, our, our sympathy and our compassion and empathy to her family, uh, uh, both biologically and politically, uh, and certainly, you know, it's, she, she has accomplished much. Uh, 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 she's a, a leader's leader, and I'll leave it right there. Thank you. And on that note, we would like to make a cultural tribute to and memory of our sister Ethel as we play these two particular songs in her memory. And like always, she will live in the hearts and minds of the people and always live forever. We like to do our cultural tribute to our sister Ethel Minor. Children of Africa.
Don't you know that home is 
Check out the AAPIP website, GC website, by going to www.a-aapip-gc.org. Check it out. We thank you. So we now make our transition to the third segment of our program as we talk about this whole question of the theme tonight, part two, Black Rage versus Big Tech. That's right. That was a very interesting article that was written in uh, the Black Agenda Report uh, titled Lundering Black Rage. And it raised some real interesting issues and concerns as around this whole concept of black rage. Uh, one of the things I start out with my particular panelists and analysts I like for them to respond to, when you look at this article, it has a subtext. Um, topic where it talk about rage is a natural human emotion that is denied to black people. I think that says so much and has a history of that phenomenon. Brother Haki, we'll start off with you to give us a um, synopsis of how do you internalize or interpret this issue of rage is a natural human emotion that is denied to black people. By making that statement, what that means to you, Brother Haki? Yes, well, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, rage is a natural, a natural uh, um, um, expression, you know, of, 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 of intense frustration, uh, and everybody does it. Uh, so, ironically, when you talk about the fact that uh, that, that expressing black rage is prohibited. <laughs> it speaks to the fact that, you know, one of the things is that when you talk about the context of capitalist society, and you talk about the routine exploitation of people, uh, uh, this exploitation, uh, particularly, you know, when it's, when it's understood by people, forms a lot of rage. So you have a situation where lots and lots of people in the African community who are intimately aware of the exploitation, be social, political, economic, that adversely impact the lives of African people. 
And of course, if that way she was allowed to express herself, ain't no telling how it's going to express itself. Uh, you know, but one of the ironies of Brother Africa when we talk about black rage, you know, one of the things, you know, you do, the, you, you know, by, by virtue of conditioning, a lot of times this, this rage that African people feel is turned is 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 is, is turned inward, uh, as opposed to rage going out. In other words, other people catching the wrath in terms of the, the frustration and anger that you feel, they tend to turn it inward. And so we talk about situations where people in, in, indulge in. And, and drug usage, uh, people drug alcoholism, or even we talk about people who kill other people who look like them, you know, out of frustration and rage. So the people in positions of power in society fundamentally understand, you know, that, you know, black rage has to be contained. And so, therefore, any time there's a, even a hint of black rage, whether you're at the workplace or whether you're, uh, you know, at, the, at, a, at school or, whether, or wherever you are, uh, the, even in the marketplace, anywhere you are, anytime that rage manifests itself, uh, uh, police are quick uh, to respond to that rage, and in, in part of it, in, in part, it's a result of understanding that that's a legitimate expression in terms of rage, given the fact that what African people have to contend with on a daily basis in the society. So one of the things you don't want to do is, you know, have a collective uh, expression of that rage among African people. Then you have over 40 million, 45 million people, you know, who simultaneously expressing their rage. Uh, of course, the biggest fear is that, you know, with that mass number of people, that they may actually get together and form organizations in which they use that rage to, to, uh, to, 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 to innovate change in the society. So certainly one of the things you want to do is you want to manage that rage and make sure, you know, that, uh, that African people get the hint uh, that uh, the rage would not be tolerated under no circumstances. And so it seems to me when we, when we look at in the context of now, uh, certainly, you know, when we look at in terms of the, the numbers of young brothers killing each other, we look at terms of this propensity in terms of drug dealing, thinking that is you know, it's a solution to the problem that you're faced with, then clearly this kind of rage that people feel is certainly being internalized. And I think the question for us in terms of, you know, what can we do in terms of getting people to understand, you know, internalizing that rage is not only not good for you, but it's also counterproductive. But clearly the state understands that uh, if African people are allowed to express that rage, then they understand the potential outcome could be devastating. And so, therefore, their role in life is to prohibit it or prevent uh, the expression of that black rage. You know, Brother Hackey, maybe can you elaborate also? You know, we got to start connecting these dots. Is this also part of this narrative of the reason why they create um, uh, what we call the police state or create uh, law enforcement more solely for the the, the, the interest of making sure that um, African people are controlled socially. Like we said, social control had nothing to do to do with justice and crime and that kind of illusion that they've been setting up people that the law enforcement were created to fight crime, but in reality they came in existence to make sure they could socially control African people. Of course, of course, but it goes even it goes even further back. You can go back to the the overseers on on the plantations. Their role was specifically to monitor the behavior of African people, those you know enslaved Africans. That was their role. That was their job, because those people who owned our ancestors understood that the kind of uh, dehumanization, uh, the kind of subjugation, the kind of marginalization that African people had to endure, it was going to facilitate a tremendous amount of anger. And one thing they really wanted to do is for those for those enslaved brothers and sisters to 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 take that anger 
and to use it against them. And so, therefore, they had an intermediary, which was the over, overseers, to make sure they stood between, you know, the, 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 the enslaved and themselves as a form of protection because they understood that that rage uh, legitimately expressed would mean that those brothers and sisters would come after those overkeepers, those slave owners, and, and liquidate them or kill them. So they understood that. But even more importantly, Brother Africa, I think one thing is also, you know, aside from the, from the police in terms of their role in terms of managing black rage, we also have to understand that when you, when you look at the African community, you look in terms of on, on every corner there's a liquor store, and the question becomes, every why? Well, there are two things. There's a liquor store on one corner and a church on another corner. And the question is, why is there in the African community a liquor store on one corner and a church on the other corner? You know, on every corner, it seems. And you ask yourself, so why is this? Why does, why does this exist? Well, it exists for a reason. When we talk about alcohol, of course, alcohol tends to, um, tends to stymie, you know, uh, energy. So if you're, if you're angry, immensely angry, you know, because of the situation that you have to contend with day in and day out, uh, alcohol serves as a safety valve. So you can go home and you can drink your, drink your, drink your drinks, uh, you know, and it mellows you out. And so, therefore, you make another day. The same is true with, 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 with drugs. The reason why the whole implementation of drugs into the African community by the CIA is because of that reason. So in order, they understood in the 60s when you had mass movements and you going on and African people actually waking up to what's going on, uh, movements, organizations were created, and people had a sense that things had to change in order to resolve this anger that they felt. Well, people in the position of power understood they had to do something about that. And so what they did was the implementation in the 80s of drugs into the African community. So you have people like uh, 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 Bladon, uh, you know, who, uh, you know, worked with the CIA and uh, Freeway Ricky Ross, uh, who actually distributed those drugs in the African community for the sole purpose of not only appeasing the African community, but essentially, you know, sort of get clean the conditions to make sure the African people chill out. So if you're high on, on drugs, then you're less likely, less concerned about the injustice or the, 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 the pain you have to contend with day in, day out day in, day in, because the drugs sort of makes it possible to, to, to not even entertain the, the reality in terms of the, the very atrocious conditions that you find yourself subjected to, and it gives you a sort of peace of mind. So people in this power understand that. So this question in terms of drugs haven't stopped. It continues today. Even though the U.S. is no longer in Afghanistan for the most part, the drugs, are, the heroin in particular, out of Afghanistan actually, actually uh, increased not only in terms of importance, but just in terms of, of quantity. So this notion that uh, controlling African people is important by any means necessary is very, very germane because that same drugs that they use in Afghanistan finds itself in the African community even in the 20, year 2022. So clearly they find there's numerous ways in which they use in terms of diffusing African rage, and, uh, and they're not beyond any means in terms of achieving that, even that being mass incarceration of people in terms of achieving that end. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your response. And to Brother Anthony, I raise with you, there is so much that can be read into this statement. Rage is a natural human emotion that is denied to black people or with the African people. Brother Anthony, from your perspective, can you talk a little bit about the importance of understanding that if human emotions are denied, from human beings from being able to express themselves, what does that do to a people or a person? Where number one, you deny him the right to have human emotions 
and just the whole idea that people will not deny or will not recognize your humanity as if you're not a human being. Brother Anthony, your response? Yes. Uh, I'm going to add to the points that were made earlier and uh, explain and uh, take a look at a controversial aspect within the African community anyway about uh about this this suppression of uh of uh, rage and that is the role of religion and um and uh people tend not li- tend not to like to focus on this aspect because of the vice of the divisive la- nature of religion but if you uh but an analysis of our history reveals that uh before Europeans sent the armies in, they sent missionaries first in order to blunt uh Africans' anger at at, at their oppression and chattel enslavement. And this continues to this day. And uh, there are forces out there that will tell, uh, uh, you know, uh, the African masses, uh, you know, to uh, uh, to obey what's in the Bible and to seek your rewards in heaven. And uh, not only... Uh, not only uh, the uh, religion does that, but uh, uh, but even our forms of entertainment do that, particularly movies. And uh, and uh, you know and uh, you know it gets to the point where uh, fear is inculcated to such a, a degree. Uh, I mean, how many Africans remember the mo- mo- movie? Um, uh, let's see. Um, uh, let's uh, remember the movie. Uh, let's see. Um, what is the name of that movie? But the gist of it was that if you uh, that 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 if you follow the Bible. And uh, you know, listen to what the pastor says. You get your reward in heaven. That is another form of uh, of uh, suppressing uh, uh, the anger that exists at the oppression that you 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 see all around you, and may, and may have uh, or may not have been a victim of during the course of your lifetime. And uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, religion also is used as a divide and conquer tactic, which is one of the reasons why a lot of people do not want to deal with that aspect of it, of our oppression. Uh, it can be liberating when applied correctly, but. Uh, without any understanding or reasoning, or uh, or the truth 
uh, behind what's in biblical literature, it can be misleading also. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Sister Eleanor, you know, um, this whole question, human, human emotions is a natural thing. And for some reason or another, when it comes to African people, everything that um, African people may display, and they had a legitimate reason for it, this society, the ruling class, the capitalists, they make it, they turn things upside down. For example, they make you love lies and hate the truth. They make you think bad is good and good is bad. And in this sense, they want us to believe that there's no justification for rage. African people should be very rageful based upon the historical injustices that they have faced and continue to face. So they try to make it look like rage is something bad. I would like for you to just talk a little bit about this whole question where under two black, where he made a statement that black rage is family on wounds in the soul. Is rage a justified behavior concerning and dealing with the historical relationships of what African people have experienced, not only in America, but throughout the world. Your perspective, Sister Eleanor. Well, rage in itself, I feel, is harmful um, that people have to endure and experience rage. Um, uh, The hormones that it releases causes... uh, illnesses uh, that uh, autoimmune illnesses such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis and other illnesses when when rage is suppressed and or anger is even suppressed. So it's awful that a group of people should have to experience something as severe as rage. There is a doctor, his name is spelled G-A-T-E-R. He um, does nothing. He's an MD. He does nothing but examine how anger affects the human body or uh, suppressed anger. You know, people who do not express their anger, who keep up a bright, happy face and struggle. He in particular looks at caregivers and caregivers that are caring for the ungrateful and the harmful impact it has on one's physical health. So for the for the someone to politicize uh uh, make black rage uh, uh, something political uh, and that it is something against white capital. Um, black rage, um, as the article says, blossoms into an anti-colonial uh, weapon. And black rage, um, they suggest, harmonizes the anger of the uh, colonial uh, 
outbreak or the impact of colonialism. Uh, it, it scrutinizes our struggle, and I would say I'm not sure that's what rage does. I think rage in itself is harmful to human beings. That level of anger and suffering, and when it is suppressed as it is in the black community, is physiologically harmful. And uh, that is an example of how uh, the colonialization of the Americas, of the United States, and the impact it's had on indigenous people, as well as the enslaved people that were forced in bondage to build and develop this country and the wealth and resources that it has at this time. As we we learned earlier, um, at first, our very persons were used as collateral to borrow money from um, British and European corporations. Now we we are faced um, six hundred years, five hundred years later. We're still dealing with rage, and unfortunately, it's a quiet. As to quote um, a line from the memorial that we just heard, it's a quiet storm, but it's not a good storm. It's harmful to the to the to the person, and uh, that's all I have to say about that right now, Brother Africa. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, to Brother Moses. When we talk about rage, Brother Moses, was the rage that many people witnessed on January the 6th when many people felt like their so-called president election was stolen? And why why did the country and the government sit back and allow them to express that rage? Your response, Brother Moses. Yeah, we live in a white minority uh, dominated society and um, the interest of, of them is being uh, advocated by the state and so you know stuff like January 6th is reflection of the chauvinism and the bigotry that is that is here um, they they are angry but uh, you know it's a psychiatrist would tell you that it's not justified uh, ultimately, uh, because they're trying to exploit us and uh, subjugate us, and uh, they're upset about the system not being efficiently uh, subjugating us. I think, you know, we have, we have a right to, to um, anger and, uh, and express our anger. Uh, we, we should do it in a positive and creative way. Uh, a way that um, moves the struggle forward, uh, and uh, that's that's the the real 
problem with rage is how you express it and what you do with it. Um, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses and panelists. I'd like to have all your response to this statement. When we read this article, the title Laundering Black Rage by Tuplak for the Black Agenda Report on September the 18th, 2022, I think he raised a real interesting point in terms of the politics of rage and the danger of rage, of rage as it relates to the capitalist interests. And he states that for stolen lands to remain colonized, for investments to remain profitable, for white capital to remain rootless, black rage must be neutralized. There are time and place for everything, Brother Haki, based upon this statement, can rage be justified? And is rage a threat as relates to this whole question to maintain stolen land, to maintain colonization, to maintain investments to be profitable, for white capital to remain rootless? I thought that was a very powerful statement. Your response, Brother Haki. Yeah. Well, no, no question about it. No question about it. In order for capitalism to maintain its longevity, in order for it to be profitable, black rage has to be controlled. If you have a situation where we're African people who are cognizant of the fact, you know, that we were kidnapped, you know, from our homeland, brought here, subjugated, uh, treated as lesser human beings, um, uh, every atrocity in the book committed against us. Uh, we understand that if we're going to articulate a wrong, then certainly we have a long history in terms of articulating what's wrong with the society. In that context, the possible in terms of you know the, you know the the, the 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 elevation of rage increases, and so therefore one of the things you want to do is to keep things undercover. One thing you don't want people is to understand the historical reality in terms of society. It's one of the reasons why they fear African people so much, even though you're 13 percent of the population. Uh, the attention you get from intelligence agencies is, is, is double than any other group in the society, and there's a reason for that. Uh, but, but, but clearly, you know, uh, if, you have, if you have a situation where, where African people could express their, express their rage, uh, one of the things when you talk about going to work and uh, you talk about receiving you know, slave wages and you've been working for a long period of time, let's say you've got an edu- educated person and you, you, you're just trying to take care of your family. So you're working at this job in which you know uh, they're ruthlessly exploiting you. In addition to the long history in terms of exploitation, uh, despite the fact that you have an education, that you find yourself working this meager job in order to try to take care of your family, it forms it some kind of rage. And so certainly if that rage was to express itself, then certainly it would make for a very uncomfortable environment in that workplace. And so one of the things they want to monitor very, very carefully what you say and how you behave, because if you don't behave, if you express things that are in opposition to the way things work at that, at that plant, or if you behave in a way in which is uh, contrary to what they feel is appropriate behavior for, quote-unquote, for a black person, then you find yourself out the door because they understand it because the bottom line is all about, it's all about the money. Everything is about the money. And keep in mind, on a much broader perspective, I think we have to keep in mind that when we talk about the context of capitalism, we often talk about full employment. And see, one thing I keep trying to get people to understand is a very difficult concept for people to understand when you try to explain to them capitalism 
when they say full employment, they don't literally mean everybody can have a job who wants one. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying to you is that we only employ people up to a point in which as long as it's profitable. At the point that it becomes profitable, then we get rid of people. That's what they're saying to you. So in that context, so, so you talk about surplus labor, you talk about, you know, all those people who without jobs, you need them in terms of, you know, ensuring that uh, that the wages remain low. Because if you complain, what do they do? They get rid of you. So historically, African people have always served as that safety valve. So you got this large pool of unemployed African people. So, so the, you know, and we having a large group of African people, you know, and, you know, uh, 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 a surplus of African people unemployed. People who have a job totally line, you see. And so, and the problem is that, you know, one of the things is that, you know, when you have people who are unemployed for long periods of time, and as that anger or that black rage continues to grow, it creates another problem for, for the society. And that is that, you know, aside from the maladaptive behaviors people engage in, you know, when they're frustrated, let's say, for, you know, killing each other, you know, such a drinking, such a drug use, aside from that, uh, the real threat in terms of those people actually being clever enough to actually take that rage and direct it toward those individuals responsible for their rage. And in that context, we talk about mass incarceration. Uh, that becomes extremely important in terms of part of the formula to make sure that you control the black wage. But let me just say one other thing real quickly before I get off the point, uh, just as a side point. And I think something Sister Eleanor said, and she talked about the, 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 the psychological aspect of, of rage, and she's absolutely correct. Because the rage does form into a tremendous amount of cortisol in your body, which is responsible for inflammation of vital organs in your body. So one of the things you don't want is inflammation through your body infecting your, you know, infecting organs, vital organs throughout the system. But here's the point: what we have to understand is that the people who run the system understands that. See, they they're not naive. See, somehow we make this assumption that these people who practice exploitation of African people, practice oppression of African people are somehow naive that when they do these things, it's just circumstances. It's happenstance. They don't understand that the people who do these things understand clearly what they're doing. So when we talk about the health epidemic among African people in terms of, you know, these, you know, kidney diseases, heart disease, uh, you know, liver failure. When you talk about all these ailments, the people who, people who, who, who study this thing, who, practice the, the oppression who created the parameters, who created the policy to ensure these, these kind of policies go in place that stresses people, African people out, they understand precisely what they're doing. They understand black rage serves an interest because the more black rage, the more physiologically uh, one suffer, you know, uh, in terms of their physical being. So they understand that. So we have to fundamentally understand that. So people who go to church, I have no problem with brothers who go to church. I mean, that's good. If you say to yourself, well, the creator is the only person I fear, I can respect that. You see what I'm saying? Because you're saying I'm not giving power to those people over there who are trying to stress me out, who are trying to make this rage uh, increase to such proportions that it literally makes me sick. I can respect people who say, okay, I want to take a drink, you know, just to cool out, you know, just to get through the weekend. Because we understand the African community, most of our parents on the weekend, Friday night and Saturday night, that was a time for, 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 a time for drink. And the reason they did that, not because they necessarily enjoyed the taste of alcohol, but to cope with a week of being subjected to all kinds of humiliation on a daily basis to take care of their family, they needed that drink in order to face the next the week coming up. And, I'm, and most of us who got with family, we understand the history in terms of, you know, in our community, how the men, you know, consume alcohol, just trying to deal 
with the day-to-day subjugation, the day-to-day humiliation, what it is to be an African in the society. So clearly, brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. Uh, all of you know, uh, all, you know, all of those, um, you know, uh, the system cannot fundamentally exist. African rage once manifest, and as long as it manifests, it affords those positions of power another day a rule. Because until we get to a situation in this country, brother Africa, where African people, when when, when people in a society start taking the African struggle seriously in terms of African people have to contend with on a daily basis. People positions of power can simply use that apathy uh, to further the oppression of all of us, not just African people, but white people, Asian people, Latin people across the board. So, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, the point is, the system cannot exist without the managing of black rage. Brother Anthony, your response to this question of rage and its role politically, how it's being used against us. For the purpose of maintaining stolen lands to remain colonized, for investments to remain profitable, for white capital to remain, to remain rootless. Your response to this statement, reality, Brother Anthony, race yes. must be uh, neutralized. Yes, it has to be neutralized, and there are a lot of mechanisms that have been developed over the centuries to neutralize it. Uh, And uh, the only difference between capitalism and chattel slavery is that certain mechanisms aren't uh, aren't used anymore, such as the whip and the chain. Those aren't used anymore. But things like, uh, you know, arbitrary dismissal uh, from your place of enjoyment, uh, employment rather, uh, wage, uh, wage slavery, uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the threat of unemployment if you do not conform uh to the uh uh to the order of uh the uh the capitalist bourgeoisie and uh and uh so uh that's how uh let's see uh religion drugs alcohol and uh and uh tobacco to a lesser extent now uh are used as mechanisms to manage the uh uh black rage. It cannot be completed uh completely eliminated uh in, in entirely uh because um uh because change all the change, everything changes all the time. So they have to come up with new mechanisms of channeling and or managing black rage. And to add to your point, Brother Anthony, you can continue also. I think you could, you could throw in this whole process of um, creating laws where if you so-called violate them, they will use the so-called legality or incarcerate you. This whole issue of law enforcement. Is a means to neutralize rage. Uh, 
you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. That is true. And uh, and also uh, what people don't realize is that the uh, uh, that the 13th Amendment, which ended chattel slavery uh, for most Africans, also has a built-in mechanism for reimposing it, and that is imprisonment. Because uh, according uh, uh, to laws, you lose your your citizenship rights when you're imprisoned, and so that is another mechanism for managing uh, black rage. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We move to Sister Eleanor. Like Sister Eleanor, like I said earlier. There's a time and place for everything. We see where rage in this sense is being used as a political tool to maintain stolen lands, maintain colonization, investments to be profitable, and asking for white capital to remain rootless. Your response to that reality, but Sister Eleanor. Um, that's true, that uh, the rage is used to maintain stolen land. Um, uh, uh, all of the market principles, uh, genocide, dispossession, slavery, profit, are all tied together. Um, attempts to outright suppress uh, the uh, the the people has um, I can't help but reflect on the fact that Africans uh, in America, born and reared in America, the descendant of the enslaved people, have a shorter life expectancy under wage slavery. Uh, than we did in the earliest, early 20th century. So um, certainly um, us being the surplus labor pool as well as others, our rage, our suffering is used to um, manage manage black rage. It must be... uh, managed to keep the bloody money um, moving uh, to keep the capitalist economy moving without question and uh, to keep the people divided as long as we're focusing uh, have the masses of the masses focusing on black rage. What we saw on January 6th in Washington, D.C. in 2022 wasn't rage. That was a coup d'etat. That was a capital attack on the capital of the United States organized, I believe, by Donald Trump and his cronies. Don't confuse that with rage or indignation. That was a coup on the U.S. Capitol, an attack on the U.S. government. 
by white nationalists. Now, as far as as uh, historically, as the article says, historically, as white capital was uh, uh, looting people, land, and resources, they gradually erected competing institutions. Uh, fronts, including government, commerce, media, and religion, to manage and codify their their conquests, and that's the reality we see it before us right here. Ergo, uh, the state, uh, in particular, everything built under. The rule of the Western state is a front for white capital, for the capitalists, for the for the few, not for the many. Finish this, Eleanor. I think we saw a loss, Eleanor. Yeah, you, you know I don't want to be too lengthy here, Brother Africa. You know, what first appeared to be inspired by black rage is reduced to, uh, it it should be uh, self-determination. We're not concerned with black rage. We're concerned with self-determination, the impact that repressed anger is having on people physiologically is horrific. It's destroying our health. What we need and what we're focusing on is self-determination and building organizations that allow us to bring about major political change in this United States of America and Thank the you, world. Brother Moses, your response to this question of black race being used as a political tool to maintain the status quo. Right. Well, you know, we've we've been oppressed. We were brought here as slaves, and uh, nothing has changed except that we've we've been promoted to a wage slave system. Um, the the Congress. Con, um, concentrated and uh, um, um, this continuously um, um, compounded the 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 institutionalized racism, uh, and so you know we we are. Just functioning in a system that that tends tends to normalize our oppression. Um, it, it has um, has no no compassion, no empathy um, to see that you know we have been through something that that, that is responsible for our rage. Um, there's there's a lack of political consciousness. On the on the part of of the 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 
at the state. And um, so we 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 have to organize ourselves to uh, to express our demands. Um, um, we don't we're not just angry. We we have demands and uh, as Elna says, self determination is is the, what we're about. And so um, we have to to um, concretely express our demands. Um, in a way that uh, that we can obtain them um, and um, struggle for them. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Now, panelists, before we make a transition to our next article in conjunction to the discussion of black rage, I would like to have each one of y'all thought on this particular point that was made later on in this article. And I'll just read some aspects of it. It states that based on this question, because one of the things we need to look at is how do we better articulate or explain to our people how we are being controlled, how we are being oppressed, so that they can better understand it. A lot of times, you know, when people are oppressed, sometimes it's very hard to really put your finger on how they are doing it. And I think this particular point raised the sophistication of capitalists and the capitalists how they go about oppressing people, and they may not realize the various forms and tools that are being used against them. Remember, we always say a wall comes in different forms, so does oppression. I can read a, a couple excerpts from this particular um, article, and I'd like to have each one of y'all paragraph signed with you, Brother Haki. It says that to manage black rage, it must be laundry like the blood money that it birthed to launch black rage into the market, its potency must be defragged. Laundering may manifest in a litany of forms, including tax havens, structural adjustments, non-profiteering, municipal bonds, drug dealing, etc. But ultimately, laundry is the logic of the state. Historically, as white capital were looting people, land, and resources, they gradually erected competing institutional fronts, including government and commerce, media and religion, to manage and codify the conquest. I'll start right there, Brother Hockey. What do you take from that particular um, paragraph, Brother Hockey? Well, I, I think he's right. Uh, I, I think, you know, when, you know, when we think about laundering in its most simplistic sense, uh, what you're doing is you're doing something essentially that's illegal, and somehow you're going to, to whitewash to make it legal. So in the context of the capitalist system, certainly when we talk about the theft of, of, of resources, uh, we don't often think about the theft of resources. In terms, we think about in terms of the investments made from the, from the money's earned from the depth of the resources, that money then is then therefore is, is 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 those investors are then turned into cash. And we only thing we say is that well, only thing we see is the fact that the, the person is wealthy. We don't understand the mechanics behind in terms of the wealth. We just see that the person is wealthy. So it's sort of it's sort of the same process applies in terms of managing uh, um, African rage. So the one thing you have to do is first and foremost you have to discredit. You know, Africans uh, uh, claim in terms of, you know, um, oppression. You know, in the society, 
once you can adequately convince people that oppression of African people doesn't exist, then certainly then you can move toward actively impressing them even more. And so we talk about so we talk about the kind of repression African people face. Uh, one of the reasons why this repression African peace, people doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't uh, dissipate. What it does is simply changes forms. And so therefore, in terms of the whole process, in terms of managing black rage, goes on you know undisturbed. Often to the extent that we don't even realize what's going on, which is so called which is another function in terms in terms of laundering. You know, but the whole point uh, of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of those paragraphs, Brother Africa, is that, you know, if, if the state can do things that essentially conceals its actions, then it's free to put, continue to persist in those kind of behaviors. One of the problems that you alluded to when you talk about the fact that why is it that you can't get, you know, people, the oppressed people, you know, our people, a lot of our people to understand intimately what's going on in society. Well, part of the reason that what they do is very, very abstract, and also what they do is that they deny, pe- deny our people information. See, one of the things in terms of information, which is which is which is so important, if you think back to back in the seventies and the early eighties, you had programs like um, like um, like it is out of New York. You had people like Phil Donahue nationally uh, syndicated. So you had these kind of programs that actually make people think. So when you have these kind of programs consistently tell people there's something fundamentally going wrong, something is wrong, and you talk about those issues on a weekly basis, then what happens is that people, even though they may not grasp fully what's been happening, they know something intuitively is wrong, which means a lot of those people are actually going to take the effort to say, you know what, there's something intuitively wrong here. Let me see if I can find out more about what's going on here. So certainly one of the things they don't want to do is pick curiosity, and, and part of that process is to deny People, people uh, access to information. That is the same process employed in terms of laundering. It's the exact same process. So it's incumbent upon people to see, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and not to make it too overly simplistic. You know, one of the things I remember I had talking to a, to a sister uh, at a program we had, and I think I referred her to Brother Anthony because after 15 minutes of trying to explain to her, she told me, she well, actually she came to me and she said, uh, I got a question. She said, I want to be indoctrinated like, like you guys. Uh, could you tell me um, tell me what, what what is the problem? And so I tried to proceed to explain to her what was going on. The sister had no clue whatsoever. No matter what I said, I said, "Well, listen, why is it that these schools don't have books and necessary supplies, computers, and and and, and modern textbooks like the county schools? Why do you think that exists?" Well, they do this. But she said, "Well, they do this. the cities are poor. Why are the cities poor? Well, I, I don't know. It's just one of those, it's always been that way." And so I'm constantly trying, I'm digging, 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 trying to get her to try, to try to catch on something, you know. And I said, well, in terms of rent, do you rent or do you own a house? She said, I own a house. I say, well, you know, recently, you know, recently it's uh, um, uh, tw- about tw- eight years ago, um, eight, 12 years ago, uh, there was a situation, or actually it was back in 2008 when we talked about the subprime debacle. You know the situation where, those people moving to those houses with the expectation, based upon their salary, they'd be able to maintain those homes. But you know what happened? Those people didn't realize behind the scenes that these brokers, that these, 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 these investors, these people working together with the banks to create these, these financial instruments that would increase in value over time. So what happens is that their mortgage will, grow up, grow, will, will increase monthly which means there's no way possible for them to maintain their mortgage simply because their salary simply won't allow that. I said, have you heard about that? She said, no, I ain't heard about that. I said, what do you think about that? Well, you know, they should have known better. Than us. 
I said, okay, sister, I got you. I hear you. Oh, listen. I said, but Anthony, Brother Anthony, Brother Anthony, can you talk to her? I don't know if Brother Anthony remember her, but I say, Brother Anthony, uh, this sister got some questions for you. I, I got to run. <laughs> you know, because I, I get to a point where you realize that, you know, you, as, unfortunately, sometimes you just can't, you just can't reach people. There was a there was a program we did uh, on a brother called Ian, and his brother's position was that, you know, look, I'm going to be like others. You know, I'm going to go out here and make mine. I don't care about what's going on. And we tried to explain to him we understand that, but what we're trying to get you to understand, in terms of going out and making yours, then the harm that you do to your family, to your future offsprings, uh, to your community, is devastating. And in the final analysis, you lose, because eventually you're going to end up in jail anyway, because that's how the game is played. I think we got to the young brother. I think he began to think about, you know, maybe I maybe I reconsider this whole notion in terms of being a hustler and making money because I because of the uh because of the, 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 the perils associated with, you know, being a hustler in the society. But all I say all I have to say, Brother Africa, clearly, you know, the question in terms of laundering is a process is and is is is, 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 is is couched in deception. And as long as that deception can be concealed, then you can continue to trick people. Unless people come to the realization there's something fundamentally wrong and they want to know what's fundamentally wrong, uh, they, have all, they have all the power. So the struggle for us, of course, is to provide clarity, to get people to start thinking about these things, those things they don't want necessarily to think about, and to get them to understand that with the, uh, with the uh, deconstruction of the, of the capitalist system, then we understand it's just inevitable that uh, you know, this, this kind of problems that confront poor people are going to confront you as well. And I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, your response to manage black rage, it must be laundry like the blood money that birthed it. The laundry black rage into the market, its potency must be defined. Laundry may manifest in a litany of forms, including tax havens, structure adjustment, Non-profiteering, municipal bonds, drug dealing, etc. But ultimately, laundry is the logic of the state. Historically, as white capital were looting people, land, and resources, they gradually erected competing institutional fronts, including governments, commerce, media, religion, to manage and codify their conquests, i.e. the state. Your response, Brother Anthony. Uh, that is true. And that uh and uh um to black goes on to state later on that to achieve concealment uh, the process of money laundering occurs in three steps, placement, layering, and integration. Placement puts the dirty money into the legitimate financial system. Layering conceals the source of the money through a series of transactions and bookkeeping tricks. In the final step, integration, the now laundered money is withdrawn from the legitimate account to be used whatever purposes the criminals have in mind for it. And uh, and the thing about it, though, the way this is done with uh, people's resources is that uh, is that 
uh, is the layering. In other words, uh, the people's history is suppressed. In our case, African people, our history is suppressed. How we got here is suppressed to a degree in which, uh, you know, a lot of Africans don't understand how we got here in the first place and don't understand how our labor and resources have been exploited uh, to make uh, the U.S. in particular what it is now, a wealthy capitalist country. But that came on the lands of the indigenous people and on the backs of our ancestors' labor. A lot of people, uh, some people do not understand that. And that is because of uh, the media and the educational system most of, most of us are subject to. Uh, from PK, from pre-K to the collegiate level. And uh, so there is a lot. So in order to... Uh, uh, to uh, eliminate this uh, laundering, there is a lot of uh, analysis that needs to be done. And that is why one of the reasons why we have to uh, form our own independent political organizations, which are guided by a revolutionary ideology, which can clear up uh these uh the the layering or misconceptions we have about our history thank you brother anthony and sister eleanor and brother moses what we're going to do is we're going to let y'all give us your any your final thoughts on this article any issues that may have not been touched that you'd like to raise and share with our this audience Feel free to do so. We start with Sister Eleanor. The mic is yours, Sister Eleanor. Well, um, I think that Brother Anthony went through the the process how this money is uh, the source of the money is removed, and so far removed. But I think uh, what's interesting is uh, uh, France Fanon. Um, the Pan-Africanist psychiatrist and political philosopher Franz Fanon makes in striking clear in his text toward the African Revolution. The colon, the uh, he said the colonial situation is first of all a military conquest continued and reinforced by civil and police administration. Um, Put uh, differently, the continuation and the reinforcement of the colony is to launder the spoils of imperial conquest with each conquest industries were built and expanded around the globe with resources pilfered 
from the previous conquest. But that's kind of what we know to be uh, how the United States was built, first from stolen land and then second by enslaved people. But when France Fanon describes colonialization, he's also describing uh, um, we can use that analysis to uh, look at the development of the U.S. economy, that um, um, the larger spoils of uh, one uh, conquest, whether it's uh, using human beings as a commodity to take loans from uh, British and French banks or lending as um, companies because there weren't banks at that time is 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 very much what he's talking about during the colonialist period. And um, as uh, expansion occurs, the integration of uh, colonial production became inedible. When speaking of European imperialism throughout the globe, Walter Rodney highlights uh, this phenomena in his uh, uh, um, text, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. Uh, sugar production in the West Indies was was joined in the uh, colonial period by cocoa production within Africa so that both merged into the chocolate industry of Europe and North America. In the... Um, it goes further to iron ore uh, from um, um, Sweden, Brazil, or Sierra Leone could be turned into different types of steel with the addition of magnesium from the Gold Coast or chrome from southern Rhodesia. Such examples could be manipulated almost indefinitely to cover the whole range of capitalist production in the colonialist period, but it could also be traced back to the very uh, development uh, and exploitation and destruction of the nations that were here in the United States and Canada, for example. Um, first, uh, we took the land from the people spread disease among the people such as smallpox and other diseases, measles and other things, and the list goes on. But I think um, using the France Fanon explanation of colonialism and its impact in the West Indies and Africa and the development of of uh, the sugar cane and the cocoa industry to produce uh, 
chocolate and to make it a, a, a industry in Europe and the Americas as an example of uh, imperialism and the impact of colonialism over the centuries. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. And Brother Moses, any final thoughts you'd like to add as relates to this article, The Laundry Black Rage, written by two blacks from Black Agenda Report, September 18, 2020. Your thoughts, Brother Moses, final thoughts. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've been covering it pretty good. Uh, um, the... The anger over the exploitation and oppression of of us as a people is is natural and uh, and uh, normal and so so you know that's the bottom line. Uh, um, we have to understand where it's coming from and uh, and uh, address it and uh, deal with it concretely. Uh, uh, we can eliminate the exploitation. Uh, uh, but with the socialist system, I don't have anything else to add. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. You're listening to Brother Africa, Africa on the Move. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a station break. We're going to play some music that goes towards liberation. And when we come back, we will continue discussion around this theme, Part 2, Black Rage and versus Big Tech. When we come back, we're going to ask Brother Anthony to start us all as I ask this question to all the panelists and analysts tonight. Based on back grades, what relationship does this have to the big tech industry? How does that relate to this concept of black rage? One way or the other. Some said black rage is based upon a behavioral expression of African people based on what they have done to them. The other said black rage is also a phenomenon by non-Europeans who, who feel like that African people are achieving too much and they must be put back in their place. But let's look at this question of um, big tech. There's an article that was written um, dealing with big tech, and the title of the article, if you can bear with me, is Exclusive Big Tech Spend Over $30 billion Acquiring Companies while regulators try to reel them in. That's the article we're going to discuss in relationship to the theme when we come back. And we'd like to have your comments. And you can do that by dialing in at 323-679-0841. This is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back.
Yeah, too. 
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine. Palestine, needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs there seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. Needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. That's up. That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Mossadegh. Allende. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that's mm-hmm. his music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure. Limbo is the race. 
neck is a racist Got the strip was getting bomb, Obama didn't say shit After you divorce yourself from the right wing Propaganda campaign is all simple and plain America could stand the game Your president got an African name Now who you gon' blame when they drop the bombs out of them planes Using depleted uranium Babies looking like two-headed aliens Follow the money trail that leads to the criminal Ain't nothing subliminal to it That's how they do it See the game they run Give a fuck if he's cunning, articulate and handsome Afghanistan held for ransom by the hand of this black man Neo-colonial puppet, white power with a black face He said, fuck it, I'll do it A master of the sky, expert at telling lies Then they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize Should've known he was trained in Chicago Worker chairman Fred and Mark Clark What they do in the dark will come out in the light Like a WikiLeaks site So I guess the crew was right, who's ready to fight? Last stage of imperialism, I ain't kidding In the immortal words of Marvin Gaye, this ain't living and Malia are huge fans, but uh, boys don't get any ideas. I have two words for you, predator drones. You will never see it coming. You think I'm joking?
we'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move, Part 2, Black Race versus Big Tech. As we talked about earlier about this whole concept of black race and the basis for it, and was not Africans had a right to be in such a state of emotion and response, we want to look at what are other issues that should and can create so-called black race or race for any group of people who are being victimized from what's rightful belongs to them and not being exploited. Now, when we talk about black race, in a sense, we're talking about an interesting article, and I want to raise, start with Brother Anthony, I play the panelists, why would this not create black rage among people in general? As we look at this exclusive big tech spend over thirty billion acquiring companies while regulators try to reel them in. It's a very interesting article and you're talking about rage. Where's the rage when it comes to big corporate companies like these big tech? Buying and creating conditions that's bringing more hardship and exploitation against the overall society as a whole. Brother Anthony, $30 billion acquiring acquisitions now by big tech. It's a few big tech companies. And they're penetrating the balance of other industries and companies and begin to control even more of the lives of the people on a daily basis. And this is a case where there should be some black age. How does that compare to the race that African people have in general? Just when you're talking about the treatment that they have endured for over the last two to three hundred years. Brother Anthony, talk to me. Should be, uh, there should be, be, be black rage over this. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there should be rage over this by all people of color if they understood the implications of uh, 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 of what's happening. And uh, actually, uh, big tech spending over $30 billion acquiring companies over the last few years reminds me of... Um, of uh, something uh, uh, that took place during the early uh, part of the 20th century that uh, Lenin wrote about in his book, Imperialism, uh, The Highest Stage of Capitalism. And uh, one of the things, what's interesting is that it's a similar pattern, but a different industry. Uh, Lennon was talking about primarily about the banking industry and to a lesser extent about the railroad industry. But anyway, but this article focuses on uh, on IT, uh, 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 internet technology, and uh, this uh, and this. Shows the same pattern, though, uh, different industry, different time period, but the same pattern. As uh, as capitalism advances, monopolies intensify. 
and uh, and that's the same pattern that uh, Lenin analyzed in his book Imperialism. Uh, there is a tendency for a few corporations, relatively few companies, to become bigger as a result of acquisitions of smaller companies or corporations. And uh, it's the exact same pattern, just in a, dis- a different industrial category, but it's the same pattern. And if people and um, and it, and it's typical that uh, that the uh, capitalist media does not make a big deal about uh, out of this sort of thing because it's dominated by capitalists. And uh, the nature of capitalism is for corporations to to get bigger and bigger until they control all the resources in a given society. And uh, that's the pattern that's being followed here. And I think the... uh, And I think the reason why people, more people aren't upset over it is because either they don't understand uh, the nature of it or they're not sufficiently educated to understand the implications of uh, of what this means. It means fewer and fewer entities controlling the labor market in this particular industry for one thing, which means uh, workers have less input over how they're compensated for their labor and uh, all the other contradictions that come with monopolies in general, such as, um, you know, a greater control over the labor market, higher unemployment, uh, Etc. But uh, but uh, the the uh, I think uh, looking at uh, Lenin's book Imperialism, in addition to this article, we'll see how uh, both of these trends follow a familiar pattern, and it's not unique to to big tech. Uh, but it's happened in the auto industry, iron and steel industry, and the transportation industry, and definitely in the banking industry. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother King. it's amazing how uh, the priorities are set in this society in terms of what they define as good and what they define as bad. In other words, things that people should be outraged about versus things that are not. How do you see this article, exclusive big tech spent over $30 billion acquiring companies while regulators try to reel them in? How do you see this question around the issue of why is it you don't see the rage that should be geared towards the behavior of these tech companies and its impact? that it is having over the rest of the society as a whole, particularly your everyday uh, working class and those who don't even work at all, lives. Your response, Brother Hackey, where's the rage? Well, 
Yeah, well, in, in a nutshell, uh, people are miseducated uh, not to uh, understand uh, economics in the society. Because you recall back in the 70s when they had the uh, the, uh, the uh, up your uh, economic quotient, in which there was a, a, a program designed to specifically encourage people to understand more about economics. That program was discounted or discontinued uh, a year, or barely a year afterwards, uh, the perception being that if you actually encourage people to understand economics, then they fully will come to understand how the system works. And one thing you don't want is for these people to understand how the, how the system works. And also, brother, I think also, you know, generally speaking, you know, one of the things, there's a very conservative Supreme Court in positions of power now. And they did a tremendous job in terms of striking down com, uh, consumer protections. And that has played a big part in terms of, um, you know, this acquiring, uh, uh, this accumulation of, of other businesses, you know, by, by tech firms. Uh, you know, one of the things, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, um, uh, antitrust legislation and the whole point is that what you don't want is certainly is a, a monopoly because certainly if you have a monopoly, it doesn't bode well not only for economic acti- activities, but it also doesn't bode well in terms of disposition of power. So you have essentially corporations who dictate what goes on society as opposed to the government, which in the case of America is supposed to be democratic. So having a system in place which corporations have more power than, than your representatives in a political office is problematic. And so clearly that's another reason why, you know, we should be very much concerned about the failure of the Congress to implement, you know, antitrust legislation to prevent these tech companies from from buying, from assuming uh, one another. Also, Brother Africa, I think one of the things is quite, comes down to a question in terms of in terms of hardcore economics. One of the things, you know, um, you know, when we talk about these mergers, you know, one of the things is that often when these, these judges make decisions in terms of whether or not to uh, justify, you know, these, these, co- these tech companies, or buying up all other tech firms, is that the, the, the question in terms of economic theory over the problem of mergers and acquisitions. Of course, we understand the problems affiliated with mergers and acquisitions in terms of the unemployment that result in the rising prices and those kind of things Brother Anthony alluded to. But more importantly, uh, what the courts tend to come down is on the economic theory, which is mainly that corporations have a right to make money. And as long as you have a system in place that says that corporations have the right to make money, then the bottom line is that they're going to do whatever they have to do to enhance their profits. Even though it's problematic for society at large, the mere fact that the Constitution's mandate that they have that right and the courts confirm that right means that the corporation will do what's profitable for them to have with the masses of people in terms of what is best for society at large. In terms, just in terms of the machinations that corporations employ, one of the things, one of the ways they get around antitrust legislation, Brother, Af- Brother Africa, is that you know, often you know these 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 firms, these these corporations utilize these tech firms utilize the, uh, a, a dubious title. Uh, normally, we think of you know people being employees, but what they came up with is a very useful term. They call them independent contractors. By calling them independent tri- contractors, they are treated as though they're independent businesses, and so therefore, gov- so these tech firms are true are, are in a position to actually do what they do. What they do whatever they want to do. Uh, merge, uh, acquire acquisitions, do all those kind of things without regard in terms of the overall impact in terms of employees who work inside those those tech industries because they are labeled independent contractors. The normal rules that govern labor doesn't apply. So that's very interesting. But more importantly, Brother Africa, and just in terms of the power that these corporations, these tech companies, well, we talk about $30 billion, which is dropping the bucket in terms of, you know, what they really spend in terms of, you know, 
at, you know, acquiring other business, other uh, tech firms. Uh, the bottom line is that when we talk about in terms of the power that they will, well, one of the things is that 10% of the, comp- of the companies generate 80% of the profits earned. Now, in the context of capitalism, when you talk about a corporations, or 10% of them, that has 80% of the, pros of the, of the profits, uh, uh, means that the revenues to the state, uh, you know, uh, becomes very, very important. So certainly with that kind of economic power, the people in the sense of power are going to listen to what they say. Aside from the fact in terms of these, these tech companies have, you know, you employ hundreds of, of lobbyists, you know, to lobby on their behalf, the mere fact that they can threaten the government in terms of their earnings is enough to, you know, get these politicians to back up and to allow these tech companies to essentially do whatever they, they want to do. And finally, let me just say this, Brother Africa. I think one of the thing, you know, the question that you raised, um, you know, when you talk about the acquisition of these tech firms, you know, you know, a couple of things come to mind. You know, uh, one of the things when when courts, you know, justify these acquisitions, and keep in mind, uh, Congress is is, is is Congress is is hesitant to actually enforce antitrust laws. In other words, these tech companies are are, are free to do as they please. Uh, one of the things is that you know when you talk about the potential for exposing secrets, uh, which undermines tech firms' profitability, that's typically one of the defenses they often employ in terms of you know justifying mergers. So they say to you, they say to to the, to the courts, you know that listen, if if you know if 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 I you know if if I interact with other tech firms, then you know what's going to happen? They can steal my secrets, which means that affects my bottom line and affects affects my prob- my profitability. So therefore, I have a vested interest in inquiring them because that way I protect, you know, my profitability. And courts have agreed they have that right to protect their profitability. And secondly, uh, one of the things, you know, um, when you talk about growth through mergers and acquisitions, you know, uh, let's be honest. The beneficiaries of such a move are what? The investors, the stakeholders. Those are the individuals who benefit from, from, these, from these acquisitions when these tech companies do this kind of thing. Uh, the, the needs of the masses of people is not not important. When it comes to African people, we, specifically when we talk about employment, clearly it has a devastating impact on the possibility in terms of employment. We have fewer and fewer tech firms actually employing people, uh, not to mention in terms of low salaries simply because of the vast amount of competition you have of people competing you know, for jobs. So clearly, Brother Africa, you know, uh, people should be upset about, uh, you know, what's going on in terms of, you know, this antitrust uh, kinds of uh, movement, uh, you know, by these these acquisitions made by by tech firms. But the bottom line is, most people don't pay attention to those kind of issues because we've been told that we don't understand economics and they're not important. And so, therefore, you know, let the professionals handle it. So, I think that's problematic. Hello. Hello, Sister Eleanor. One of the contradictions that I saw in this particular article is that it talks about where 55 to 60% of U.S. Congress is in opposition to the acquisitions, and therefore, you know, they have the power to vote and make rules and regulations. But on the same hand, they have most all the Congress are tied into their donations in terms of receiving funds and kickbacks from these companies in order for them to maintain their seats. So how are they going to reconcile these contradictions if they truly come about bringing these companies in check? 
just your response to that phenomenon, Sister Eleanor. Well, well, they're obviously not. As um, I think I mentioned last week, last week, a young man named Fields sold his company called Figma, F-I-G-M-A, for $20 billion to Adobe. So right now, it's as we were talking about black rage. Well, what you see here is uh, an example, a case study of rage because we continue not to rein in these uh, information um, whether they call them social media uh, companies and IT companies. And what we're doing is allowing this monopolization by these companies. And we see the rage of the youth that went to Buffalo and, and shot up and murdered a bunch of Africans. We see a youth who went in Chicago and and murdered a bunch of Jewish people on what he thought was the Sabbath. We saw the youth, a Hispanic youth, barely past his 18th birthday, go and shoot up an elementary school and kill 22 people. So, you know, we're seeing the black rage transferring into working class rage and social rage and Congress has not acted on it since 2020. And remember in June, early 2020, uh, as contagious black rage embraced American cities across the country with the killing of George Floyd, the Democrat Party had a uh, one-month online fundraising uh, record of $393 billion. In, in just four days, they collected $115 million. So these people aren't motivated to take any action. It's up to us to organize and force action upon them. There have been two bills sitting around now for over two years. They're weak, lukewarm, weak bills as they stand, but yet Congress isn't even making an attempt to call for a vote on them. So um, I don't know. Uh, what we can do other than organize ourselves to demand, and I and and it is a a reform. It's a simple reform, nonetheless a reform, and that is that we organize ourselves to take political action with the vote 
because uh, right now Congress isn't taking any action. And um, and as Brother Haiti said, they've convinced the masses that maybe this is too complicated for them to figure out. It's up to the college dropouts that have become billionaires and trillionaires on this industry to make the decisions. And I would say, no, they're not decisions. And uh, um, it's up to it's up to us, the people, to make those decisions for them. Um, the data for progress uh, uh, industry found that 59% of the Democrats and 70% of the Republicans said that big tech economic power presented a problem for the U.S. economy. Additionally, some 55% of the Democrats and 61% of the Republicans said they supported breaking up big tech, but no one has taken action to do so. And uh, as the article said, the clock's ticking. If the bill still doesn't pass before November midterm, they may not, I don't think they're going to pass at all. So there's going to be new legislation that needs to be written and even stronger legislation because, uh, as I said, this sitting around for a couple of years since uh, 2021. Thank you, Sister Alanoa. Brother Moses, is there a distinction or such thing as white race, race of capitalism, and look how destructive historically that has been, i.e., there has been a historical phenomenon where the first atomic bomb that was dropped, it was dropped by the U.S. government, by capitalism, or a different group of people, a different color hue. We look at the destruction of economic warfare to 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 blockades or trying to suffocate people. How do we want to justify trying to control black race while at the same time so called race of capitalism? Some say white race is out of control. Your response, Brother Moses. Right, well <clears throat> the so called white race is just exploited uh, and um, attempt to uh, dominate and chauvinism and uh, attempt to to uh, exploit the rest of the world and uh, that's not rage that's just a sickness um, you know Marx analyzed capitalism and das Kapital and you know it's no need to reinvent the wheel uh, he he showed that capitalism and uh, competition leads to monopoly. I mean, that's just part of the capitalist system. It, it, um, monopoly is a feature of capitalism uh, um, because competition leads to monopoly. And so that's nothing unusual. Um, we have to organize ourselves 
um, into a political party that's capable of ruling uh, over the U.S., um, a political party that is capable of dispensing of Congress and the, the executive branch and the, legis- the legislative, executive, and judicial branch, and is capable of creating its own institutions, um, a revolutionary institutions, um, so that all powers can be transferred from the old system to the new system. But we need a political party that is conscious, that is that has raised the consciousness of its people and is directed by a revolutionary ideology, and uh, and uh, it's a political economy. And so the conditions are right economically. You know, we have a highly socialized economy, and the conditions are ripe for revolution. All we need is a political um, um, organization that is capable of of, of ruling. Um, so, you know, otherwise we're going to be continue the the the, the Democratic Republican um, stronghold on the economy. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, this is Africa on the Moon. You can hear us every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. And you feel free to call in at 323-679-0841 to share your views and your perspectives. Also, if you have any questions or comments, we invite you to email us at africaonthemoon2 at gmail.com. If you can write us a little note to tell us you support, listen to Africa on the Move, we will greatly appreciate it because what that does is give us opportunity to have a direct contact with you and to keep you informed of other issues and things that are going on in a timely basis. If you do that, we will greatly appreciate it. So at this point in time, Brother Africa, your host, we're going to take a revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we have some announcements from the African Awareness Association and the APRPC, as well as the D.C. Metro Coalition for the Cuban Revolution. And we want you to come back, listen to the announcements, and we will also give you our final thoughts for today's program. This is Africa on the Move. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, to last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. 
must prepare and learn how to care For soon we'll be there where our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. Made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be, to know that I've been here, and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah.
it because we love you. And not that I was born in Africa, but Africa was born in me. That's why I'm an African. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon as your host, Brother Africa. We are discussing and closing out this segment, Part 2, Black Rage versus Big Tech. At this point in time, we'd like to make a couple announcements, followed by our closing remarks. Again, Brother Anthony, can you remind our brothers and sisters about the tribute memorial services that will take place on Monday as relates to our sister Ethel Manor. And for more information about those who may have came later to this program or know who is this brilliant revolutionary principal soldier, please go to the AAPRPGC website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. There more about this particular sister, her contribution to her people, humanity, and about other various movements that you can find on that particular website. Brother Anthony, can you share with the listening audience the services that will take place in Chicago this Monday, October the 3rd? Certainly. Uh, memorial services for Ethel Minor will take place uh, tomorrow, Monday, October 3rd. 2022 Visitation Begins At Cage Memorial Chapel Located at 7651 South Jeffrey Boulevard At 11.30am Funeral service Will begin at 12.30pm With burial Afterwards at Lincoln Cemetery Located at 123rd and Kenzie Avenue, Blue Island, Illinois. And for uh, for more information about Ethel uh, Minor, please visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you, Brother Anthony, and also Brother Haki, the African Awareness Association, in conjunction with Africa on the Moon and other organizations, will be collaborating with the African Awareness Association as they take their annual trip to Cuba. This year is going to be from January 23rd to the 30th, leaving for Cancun, Mexico. So you haven't made that move yet, we tell you go and make that move right now. You can email them for more information at African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. But, Brother Haki, tell people why it's important that you, for those who haven't gone, or even for those who have gone, why we should support the Cuban people and their socialist revolution. Brother Haki. Yeah, the exciting thing about you know Cuba is its history. When we think about the kind of uh, oppression African people face in the context of North America, we think about Cuba in historical terms, in terms of its fights against Batista and his corrupt regime, you know, backed by Western powers, specifically the United States, for the sole purpose of domination and exploitation of its people. And we think about the heroic struggle of the Cuban people in terms of their, their, um, uh, their principal stand in terms of fighting for that which is right. 
ironically, when you think about currently, you know, U.S. and Cuban relationships, a lot of the hostility the U.S. has toward Cuba is 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 is, is a repudiation of the fact that the Cubans actually stood up and fought for that which is right. So clearly, I mean, in the context of America, we talk about in terms of systematic wrong committed against its people. Uh, Cuba stands in stark contrast as an example of what humanity could be, what humanity should be, certainly what ha- humanity will be into the future. So clearly, Cuba's history is very, very important. The, the relationship between uh, the Cuban history and the history here in America is a very unique one. And clearly, you know, Cuban support in terms of, you know, um, black revolutionaries, you know, historically is unprecedented. So clearly, Cuba has a great deal of respect for humanity and it manifests in terms of the kind of uh, policies and the kind of things that it does in terms of the, 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 the um, enhancement, you know, of that which is, you know, humane and just. Also, I think, you know, also one of the things I admire about Cuba and encourage people to go is that this whole anti-racism struggle is very, very uh, key in terms of, you know, Cuba's you know, evolution. And the mere fact when you get to Cuba, you get an opportunity to talk to people, and you see people, you know, you know, different ethnicities and the kind of racial hostility, the kind of racial animosity that's so commonplace in America doesn't seem to exist in, in, in Cuba. And I'm not naive. I, I'm sure there are some who manifest, you know, these kinds of racial animosities. I'm sure they exist. But in terms of in terms of visibility, I just never, you know, when I last visited there, I didn't see any indication that, in fact, there was any hostility between people based upon ethnicity, that people saw themselves as Cuban. And so I thought that was a very, very beautiful thing. So that's a testament to Cuba in terms of institutions that had innovated for sole purpose in terms of teaching people to be human beings, not a, not a black human being, not a white human being, not an Asian human, not a, uh, Asian human being or a Hispanic human being, but just a human being. So that's a, that's a fantastic accomplishment, and I encourage people to go firsthand and see for themselves. Also, you know, I'm, I'm enamored with the, um, the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution. In fact, you know, one of the things we talk about in context of America, we talk about, you know, community action. And one of the problems is that we don't have the kind of organization in our communities, you know, that, um, that, are, that are designed where situations arise, the response for community is immediate. Well, in Cuba, they have a, what you call the Committee of Defense of the Revolution, the city are. And this is a community-based organization, and these brothers and sisters are very much uh, in, in, uh, geared toward what goes on in society. If there's something that, dis, that, that uh, adversely impacts the community, adversely impacts the country, these brothers and sisters are organized to come before the, 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 the Central Committee of Cuba to raise their grievances in terms of what they perceive as the just and right way to deal with what they perceive as a political infraction. So clearly, if we could take some example in terms of the city are in terms of their their uh, their um, proactive nature in terms of dealing with problems, that I think we could use that in America in terms of really uh, being in a position, you know, to not only have strong communities but communities that are proactive. So when situations arise, for instance, where uh, there's a problem in schools where you know you feel like the education quality is not up to par, that you have the kind of organization that you can go directly into to the school to the school board. To, to articulate what your concerns are and to present this kind of force, which forces these people in positions of power, you know, to concede, you know, that changes have to be made. And keep in mind, changes only happen is when you, once, when, once you force people to concede, change is needed. So, for the, so for the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution is that kind of example, and that's something certainly we can emulate here in North America. Also, you know, just in terms of generally speaking, though, when you go to Cuba, the kind of inspiration, I mean, a lot of ancient um, 
institutions. I mean, you look around you, a lot of historical, you know, you know, buildings, uh, historical monuments, you know, attesting to what Cuba used to be. And you look around and you see Cuba, you know, as it currently exists, and you see the, you see the transition to what it used to be to what it is currently, you know, uh, but, 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 you know, mindful of the past, but geared toward the future. So clearly, you know, this kind of it's, Cuba is somewhat inspirational in terms of, you know, just its architecture. So that alone is worth going to see for yourself in terms of, you know, uh, what made Cuba such a, a fine, a fine example in terms of what humanity could be. So for all those reasons, I encourage people to go to Cuba to see for themselves firsthand, and to understand that you know what Cuba is is, is seeking to achieve is also achievable here. But it's good that we have this example of Cuba to you know to sort of point the way in terms of going about achieving uh, a different paradigm you know in the society. Thank you, Brother Haki and Sister Eleanor. Are there any announcements you'd like to make concerning any projects or works or activities that will be taking place with the D.C. Metro Coalition in support of the Cuban Revolution? Sister Eleanor. We we are planning a fundraiser on October 21st. That's our tentative date is uh, October 21st, um, we'll be able to give you more information in uh, the next uh, week or two. And we hope that people will join us for that fundraiser. Um, the the coalition is uh, stands in solidarity with the uh, Cuban people and the Cuban revolution, and uh, we are urging and fighting for the U.S. to um, uh, give up the embargo, to cease the embargo that it had going on against Cuba since 1963. Okay. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. The last announcement, which is an important one for us, and so I listen to all these supporters. Many people have been asking how can they support this radio station and the work of Africa on the Move, African Women Association. We tell you, you can show your love by cash apping us at dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b. We have a gift you send. We'll greatly be used to continue our work and to help move our people forward, and we greatly appreciate it. Again, you can cash up us at capital dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b. We greatly appreciate it. And right now, we'll make our transition on this final program tonight, part two, Black Rage vs. Big Tech on the second day of October by getting the final comments and final thoughts from Sister Eleanor. The mic is yours. Yeah, it's just uh, the reality that since the article that we were reviewing tonight, Big Tech has spent $30 billion. But now we added in the last week an additional $20 billion to bring it up to $50 billion that Big Tech has spent absorbing smaller companies. 
and that was the purchase of one company alone, $20 billion. So I uh, agree with the uh, my fellow analysts. Now is the time to organize. It is also time to make sure that you are registered to vote. The midterm elections are coming up, and uh, despite the contradictions that this that we face, we need to register to vote. Twenty-nine states have taken those or attempted to restrict those votes. Uh, it's up to us to exercise our right to vote. And that doesn't mean vote for anybody or anything. It just means to register to vote, to go and vote. And and if there is no candidate that is meeting your goals and objectives when you're there, that's one ballot that goes that will be counted with no uh, qualified candidate to vote for. I just think it's very important that we take over our local communities and we can do that by running for office, uh, by promoting our own candidates, and by voting. We can have a tremendous impact on our community our local communities. With that in mind, I wish you, Brother Africa, and all the fellow panelists and analysts a very good evening and a wonderful weekend. And again, my condolences to Sister Miner's family and to the Crest Welsing family. They are great contributors to the African community and to world society in their work uh, and their research and their publications. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night to you, Sister Eleanor. Next, we'll go to Brother Haki. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Haki. Yeah. Uh, you know, I often talk about the right-wing uh, drift, you know, in the society. Recently, it comes to mind that a a a, a current uh, FBI agent, uh, Stephen Friend, refused to investigate January 6th insurrectionists, and that's very, very interesting. Now, in addition to that, there are a couple of senators, Senator uh, Chuck Grassley and Ron, and Ron Johnson, two senators, U.S. senators, who demanded the FBI reinstate this particular guy because he was suspended for his failure to participate in an in the directive, which says that he had to investigate the January 6th insurrectionists. Interestingly enough, you know, this particular agent, Stephen Friend, he describes the the, uh, the January 6th insurrectionists insurrectionist as patriotic. That's very ironic. And also the kind of treatment that he was afforded was very interesting because when you contrast his, behavior, his treatment with that of a black uh, FBI agent, Terry Albury, in, out of Minneapolis, Terry uh, Albury was charged, supposed to be leaking, leaking um, classified documents. In fact, what happened was Terry Albury accused the Minnesota FBI Department of Racism because they arbitrarily singled out the Somali community for, you know, for uh, for investigation. 
and he felt that there was no justification for it. But the FBI disagreed, and they set him up, and uh, they leaked some documents and put it on him. He's currently doing four years in prison. This guy, Steve, Steve Friend, the white FBI agent, even though he refused to abide by orders to investigate the January 6th insurrectionists, he was only suspended. He wasn't fired as of yet. So that's a very, very interesting uh, contrast in terms of the FBI response uh, to uh, uh, you know, to uh, two FBI agents' uh, um, uh, dereliction of duty, alleged dereliction of duty. Also, Stephen Friend says that uh, his position is that the reason he won't, he don't want to investigate the January 6th insurrectionists, is because he feels it's political motivated. And to and to which I ask, really? And my I, my question is, are all FBI cases politically motivated? When you think about the Cortel probe, specifically to investigate only African organizations and African and or Puerto Rican organizations. Was that not political? Well, how about this? Recently, the FBI refusal to label right-wing uh, groups as terrorists. It's all political. So the mere fact that he's saying that uh, to, to investigate the general insurrection is, 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 is politically motivated is very, very odd, uh, particularly when he says that, you know, the, when he says that you know the, the, the persecution of German insurrectionists is like the FBI siege of Ruby Ridge back in 1991. For those who don't remember, Ruby Ridge uh, involved this guy named Robert Weaver. He was a right wing nut uh, uh, who was involved with the uh, anti government uh, 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 movement. Uh, he threatened Ronald Reagan, the president at the time, and uh, also he was um, he was um, he had a relationship with the Aryan Nation, and he was charged on numerous occasions with gun charges. Despite this, uh, this, this agent, Stephen Friend, says that uh, to make this correlation between, you know, the treatment of gangsters and directions and this guy, and this guy Robert Weaver, uh, Ruby Ridge, to say somehow the two cases are correlated is very, very odd. Uh, clearly, uh, Robert Weaver uh, committed crimes, you know, which is justifiable. Clearly, the January 6th insurrectionists committed crime. But the mere fact that he's willing to stand by them suggests that this right-wing ethos, this right-wing, this right-wing view, you know, that uh, society fundamentally, you know, has to be moved further to the right, is evident in terms of the kind of behavior this particular FBI agent conveyed. That should be reverse scared to people. You know, people don't get this, this, the, 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 the the ominous character of this one. <laughs> I don't know what to say. This is clearly scary. I mean, this is really scary stuff. Given when the FBI agent tells the tells the organization. I'm not going to investigate anybody because I think what they're doing was justifiable and right. That's very scary stuff. Uh, in closing, Brother Africa, I always encourage people to unravel the matrix. Uh, you know, one thing is very, very clear. You know, the situation that we're confronted with is not going is not going to improve. I mean, when we talk about the deconstruction of capitalism, when we talk about the decline of capitalism, we have to understand fundamentally no amount of wars, no amount of injustice inflicted upon the populace is going to stop the decline of the capitalist capitalist economy. We have to wake up and realize that we have to have institutional organizations to be prepared to deal with the inevitable. And if we don't have organizational institutions to deal with the inevitable, any consequences that come down that come down the pike, we only have ourselves to blame. And I'll close with that. Brother Africa, have a good night. You do the same. Thank you, Brother Aki. Back in the day African Liberation Day, the masses would have a saying that the only terrorists in the USA are the FBI and the CIA. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes you wonder, Brother Hakeem, if if that's not a true statement. That's what the people say. So let's go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for the night. 
My final thought for tonight is that we must get organized as a people. Uh, We cannot solve our problems in a disorganized fashion, and we need political organization more than ever, and we need to understand our history more than ever. So I urge everybody to study our history and also join an organization that is working for our people's liberation. One such organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. You can find out more about us by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And thank you for having me tonight. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. Thank all our panelists. Thank our listening audience. Thank our supporters. And we would just remind you that we actually come help us build this program by sharing our program with your network and also by emailing us. Let us know that you are a supporter of Africa on the Moon Radio by emailing us at AfricaOnTheMoon2 at gmail.com. At the same time, we would like to remind you to come and join us as we go with African Wellness Association on this tour coming up for the new year, January 23rd to the 30th. And like always, we are here to give you information so you can think and introduce you to organizations to help you think more clearly. The greatest weapon that can move your people forward is the weapon of organization. Through organization, all things are possible. Until next time, let's don't forget that we must always strive to go forward ever, backwards never. And the only way we can do that is through organization. So Africans, let's get organized for Mother Africa and a better humanity. Until next time, we see you next week, same time, same station. This has been Africa on the Move, Brother Africa. We'll be looking forward to have a dialogue with you next week. We leave you with Mama Africa and some other revolutionary culture music for the next few minutes. This has been Africa on the Move. Scholars and scientists now concede that Africa is the birthplace of mankind. Africans were the first builders of civilization. They discovered mathematics, invented writing, developed sciences, engineering, medicine, religion, fine arts, and built the Great Pyramids, an architectural achievement which still baffles modern science. The 225th Emperor, Emperor, direct descent from Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, Sheba, Educate yourself of Africa To liberate yourself, Africa Keep your heads up high No more will we cry hey, Our history that they stole 
Question for you: What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five. But if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.